Well, we learn in our literature classes that good story writing typically follows a basic pattern. Uh, introduction of major and maybe some minor characters to include the protagonist, that's the good guy, and the antagonist, the bad guy. The, the conflict between these two leading to the uh, climax of the story, the resolution of that conflict, and then the, the denouement or the, uh, or the conclusion. Now, in good writing, there is also, uh, I guess, character development. How well do we know the major players? You know, do we like them? Do we not like them? Do we identify with them? Do we sympathize with them? You know, different things like that. Of course, this poses a problem for most date nights. You see, most men don't care about character development. Just get me to the action. I don't really care what your favorite color is. Can you use an Uzi? I told my wife I was going to say that, and she looked at me and said, what's an Uzi? And I knew at that moment that I had failed miserably as a husband. Most women, of course, do care about character. You know, what do they like? Who do they like? Do they like cream and sugar in their coffee? Uh, Did they have a problem with their mom growing up? All elements totally unnecessary to the plot. I have a theory. This is why the born identity was was popular with both men and women. If you don't know, the basic storyline was this. A government-sponsored assassin couldn't remember who he was. Women, you see, were concerned about that. You know, where he grew up, who his parents were, was he married, did he have children? Men, who cares who he is? We just like the way he took out those French policemen or the other assassins trying to take him out. I I suppose character development is important to a good story. We've been in a study of the life of Joseph, and there actually has been some really good storytelling. We're first introduced to the major players, Joseph, who is the protagonist, Jacob, not really sure what he is, and and then there's the brothers who are the antagonists. We see the conflict develop rather early. Jacob's favoritism toward Joseph, that coat of many colors, and then those dreams, all leading to the brothers' hatred of Joseph, so they sell him into slavery in Egypt. The, The plot thickens. We we meet some minor characters, Potiphar and Mrs. Potiphar, the cupbearer and the baker, even Pharaoh's a a minor character. After 13 years of conflict, there's a a kind of mini resolution. Joseph is, is promoted to prime minister in all Egypt. Make no mistake about it, this is not the major climax or the major resolution. You see, there's still the problem between the protagonist and the antagonist, between Joseph and his brothers. So along comes a famine, conflict, to bring the brothers face-to-face with Joseph. The story is now speeding toward a major crescendo. Of course, all along, we remember this really is God's story. 
You see, through this drama, we must remember what this story is all about. The faithfulness of God to his own promise to redeem a people for his own glory. That is the story of the Bible. We must constantly remind ourselves that God is at work. He is the major player, the main actor on this stage that we call human history. And in this particular act that we're studying, he is fulfilling his promise to take the covenant family to Egypt where he's going to make a great nation of them. So this story of Joseph in chapters 37 to 50 must not overshadow the main character, that's God, and what he's doing. He's faithfully fulfilling his promises. And if you're at a point by now where you're saying, okay, Scott, I've heard this so many times, I can recite it in my sleep, I say, good. I'm accomplishing my primary objective. This book is a book about God and how we fit into his story, not the other way around, which is the way most people approach God. How can I fit a grand, great, huge God into my little bitty life? It works a lot better the other way around. Now, I've told you that the author of this story that we're in, Moses, is a brilliant writer. It helps that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's a brilliant uh, storyteller nonetheless. I mean, we've met Joseph, and and we kind of like him. We found him to be maybe a little bratty um, in the beginning, to be a man of, uh, uh, but also to be a man of great integrity and great um, faith. I think we, maybe one behind there. Push the button. There you go. Um, great. He believes God despite incredible odds. He believes that God is at work, that God is pulling the strings behind the curtain, and that God is fulfilling his grand design. Well, we've also met Jacob, and we find him to be a bit lacking in the faith department. While God is at work in his life, getting that his family down to Egypt, Jacob doesn't seem to get it. And last week we saw in the latter years of his life, Jacob is really a bit of a pessimist. You remember that? Back in chapter 37, um, uh, after it it appeared um, that Joseph, his favorite son, was dead, he refused to be comforted and said, surely I will go down to the grave in mourning for my son. Last week, chapter 42, when, when, when the brothers came back from the first trip to Egypt and tell Jacob that they, they could not go back and, and get more food without Benjamin, the new favorite son, Jacob says, you have bereaved me of my children. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to his children. You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. You would take... Benjamin too. All these things are against me. And the truth we saw was that all these things were for him. Yes, times were difficult. Famine and all of that. But God was at work in Jacob's life. Far from everything being against him, all things were actually for him. And we get to chapter 43 today, we'll find they've run out of food. They have to go back to Egypt with Benjamin. And Jacob says, okay, fine, take him. 
And if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Might as well curl up in a corner and die. We get to chapter 45. After he hears that Joseph is alive, he says, I'll go down and see little Joey before I die. Chapter 46, he sees Joseph. He says, now I can die and lives for 17 more years. The guy is a pessimist. This is some good character development. You see, it causes us to, well, to identify and to ask a question. In the midst of trial, am I a Joseph trusting in a great and loving God or am I a Jacob? Little faith, glass half full, all these things are against me. Even God is against me. Last week, we looked at chapter 42. You remember that I suggested that chapter 42 to 44 of Genesis actually go together, could be called the awakening of conscience. In these chapters, God is working through Joseph in the lives of his brothers to bring about repentance for their sin perpetrated against Joseph 20 years ago. You see, while God is taking the family to Egypt, he is also dealing with the brothers to bring about a change of heart. And we've seen that up till this point, there's some guilt there. There's a little bit of sorrow, but not yet repentance. Because we, we're not, we don't know if there's any change of behavior. And we, I said last week, it's not enough to say, I'm sorry. You've got to evidence godly sorrow through a change of action. There's an old poem that says it like this. Tis not enough to say I'm sorry and repent and then go on from day to day just as we always went. Repentance is to leave the sin we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing them no more. Kind of hokey, but it's good. It, it's right. So we are in the middle of seeing the brothers brought to true repentance, true change. That They're guilty. They're, they're beginning to recognize that everything that is coming upon them might just be divine retribution. They might even be sorry. But here's the, here's the $64,000 question. Have they changed? When presented with the same circumstances of 20 years ago, what will they do? The suspense is building. We're supposed to be sitting on the edge of our seats. This is going to lead to the climax of the story, by the way, and it's uh, resolution, chapters 45 to 47, and the conclusion of the story, verses 48, uh, chapters 48 to 50. So, so, so as this is all unfolding, we've got this great storyline taking place in front of us. It's time now to develop another character in the story. You see, he's been the leader of the antagonists. He's been the leader of the brothers. But God has some plans for this guy. Well, specifically his descendants. Well, specifically one of his descendants. So in the midst of this story of repentance and redemption, we meet Judah. Now, what have we seen about this, well, this loser up to this point? Not anything good, that's for sure. In chapter 37, while Joseph has been stripped of his robe, languishing in the pit, Judah is the one who came up with the plan to sell the brother, Joseph, into slavery. What good will it do to just 
kill him. Why don't we make a little money on the side? Nice guy, great leader. No. no. Then in the next chapter, chapter 38, we didn't look at that. But we find him to be an immoral man. It's actually, chapter 38 is actually a story within our story, but it's there to show why the family must go to Egypt and get away from ungodly Canaan and to show how Judah needed some character development. I won't recount the salacious details of of that story. You can uh, you can read it, but, but basically, uh, it, it goes like this. Judah had three sons, uh, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, as I recall. The, the first one marries a Canaanite woman named Tamar. Then he dies. According to Leveret custom, the next brother should marry the widow to provide an offspring for his brother so his line doesn't die out. So the next brother, Onan, marries Tamar and promptly dies. And that just leaves the third son, Shelah, whom whom Judah now withholds from Tamar. You see, he did the math. He's thinking, hey, this woman is bad luck. I mean, she's like a black widow. Forget it. Through a series of awful events, Tamar becomes pregnant by Judah, her her father-in-law. It's a nasty story. But but through the story and its unfolding, Judah realizes that he's been wrong, immoral. There's been some character development. And so now, it's years later. Where is he? Will he develop into the family leader that God wants him to be? At this point, the seven years of plenty have passed. Seven years of famine have begun. Jacob hearing there was grain in Egypt, sent 10 of his 11 sons to get some. He doesn't send Benjamin. When they arrived, who should meet them but Joseph himself? We we saw that Joseph treated them harshly. He accused them of being spies. He threw them into prison for three days, and and then he he got them out and sent, sent them back to Canaan with both provisions and instructions to bring their youngest brother Benjamin to prove that they're not spies, to prove their story. He kept one of the brothers, Simeon, in prison for a little insurance. When they returned to their father, Jacob said, there is no way in the world that I'm ever going to let Benjamin go to Egypt. As far as Jacob is concerned, Simeon can rot in prison. He's not going to put his new favorite son at risk. Do you see? Do you see how the story is developing? Brings us to chapter 43 with the following outline. We're going to see the relentless famine, the return for food, and the regal feast. Nicely alliterated, don't you think? So let's begin by reading verses 1 to 14 to see the relentless famine. It says this. Now the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, the man, and I want you to notice how they call him the man. 
The man solemnly warned us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel, that's Jacob, said, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could, could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? <sighs> Judah said to, uh, to his father Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety or guarantee for him. You may hold me responsible for Benjamin. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. If we had not delayed, surely we could have returned twice by now. Then their father, Israel Jacob, said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present, a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh and pistachio nuts and, and, and almonds. And you should be asking, why did we get the list? That's kind of interesting. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Maybe you didn't steal it. Take your brother also and arise, return to the man. And, and may God Almighty grant you compassion. It's kind of nice to see Jacob remember God. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. It's a great story. The famine was severe in the land, in Egypt and in Canaan. Every time I read that, I'm amazed at the discomfort that God caused for the entire world to accomplish his purposes in this one family. Not sure exactly how much time has passed since their first trip to Egypt, long enough for them to run out of the grain that they had brought back. Don't miss that. They didn't go back immediately with Benjamin to get Simeon. They would let Simeon sit in prison while they ate in Canaan. Does that sound familiar? They're going to sit down to a meal while one of the brothers is languishing in a pit. Not much repentance yet. It's only a matter of time till their backs were against the wall. So, so Jacob says, go back to Egypt and buy a little food. Everyone points out, it's almost like he says, hey, run down to the corner store and buy us some Twinkies. To which, to which Judah responds, um, have you forgotten something? If we go back without Benjamin, we'll be lucky if we don't join Simeon in prison. And then Judah adds some details that we don't read in chapter 42. He's either embellishing to... For, to build his case, or we hear a little bit more about the conversation that actually took place. He says, the man, now we know the man is Joseph. 
the man solemnly warned us, you won't even see my face if you don't have Benjamin. Judah says, send Benjamin, we'll go. Don't send Benjamin, we won't. It'll just be a waste of our time. At this point, ever-pessimist Jacob begins whimpering. You can hear it. Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man you had another brother? Woe is me. Why didn't you just keep your big mouths shut? To which they responded. The man questioned us very specifically about our family. Yeah, is your father doing well? Do you have another brother? Those are kind of insightful questions. We just answered truthfully, Dad, being the honest men that we are. (laughs) How did we know he'd say, bring your other brother down? Which brings us to some significant character development in Judah. You see, back in chapter 42 last week, Reuben said, listen, Dad, if I don't bring Benjamin back safely, you can kill my two sons. Kill a couple of your grand, grand boys, Dad. You see, Reuben continues to demonstrate, even though he's the firstborn, he continues to demonstrate that he is in no place to lead this family. The next two, Simeon and Levi, proved that they were unworthy of the leadership role by the way they slaughtered an entire city of men in chapter 34. Besides, second-born Simeon is in Egypt. What about son number four? What about Judah? He has not shown a lot of promise to this point. But we have this issue of the descendant, the lion of the tribe of Judah, yet to be born. You see, the line of the tribe of Naphtali doesn't work. So we need to see some things change in this man's life. Starting now. He he says to dad, send the lad with me. Interesting word choice. Lad speaks of a young boy, and it is a term of affection. Jacob uses this term of affection for the new favored son. That's a little different than, hey, let's sell him and make some money. Send him with me that we may live and not die. He actually uses Jacob's words from chapter 42. That's what you said. You're concerned about Benjamin, Dad, but all of us, you, me, our sons, our grandchildren, listen, your whole family is at risk here. Send him with me, and he says, I will be responsible. Notice that Judah is willing to take responsibility for Benjamin's safety. Unlike Reuben, who said, if I don't bring Benjamin back, kill my sons, Judah said, I will be personally responsible for him. This is critically important. Critically important. Because we actually see one of the brothers, this brother, taking responsibility for a favored son. If I don't bring him back, I will bear the blame for the rest of my life. I'll be responsible. Can't help but throw in a little sarcasm. By the way, if you'd let us go, we could have gone and come back twice by now. Jacob finally agrees to let Benjamin go. Why? As much as we'd like to think that Jacob felt confident in Judah's abilities, 
He hadn't proven much yet. The reason to let him go? He's hungry. Notice how Jacob tells the boys to take gifts, to take money, and take Benjamin with you. And he prays that God Almighty, that's the, that's the title, El Shaddai, will grant them mercy. Important. El Shaddai is typically the title used of God to speak of his power to keep his promises. You made some promises to us. And so I'm going to pray to El Shaddai that the man... That, that I'm going to pray to El Shaddai that, that you will keep your promises. I'm going to pray, notice, that the man will release you... Uh, your other brother, and Benjamin. He doesn't even name Simeon. God, I pray that you'll release Benjamin and what's his name. You see, the favoritism is still alive and well. But what about the jealousy and hatred of the brothers? This, you see, is the question. Has there been a change? With all of the preparations and prayers, Jacob is still not very confident. He says, as for me, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Everything is against me anyway. So the brothers take off, bringing us to the second point, the return for food, verses 15 and following. Look at that with me. It says, <coughs> so the, um, oh, excuse me, verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and, and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves. With our donkeys. Should sound familiar. And so they came near to jo Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, Oh, my Lord. And it says they spoke to him. You can hear all of them, uh, 11 of them speaking at one time. Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks. And behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our, our, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Like a bunch of whining little babies. He said, be at ease. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. Who has more faith at this point? I had your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. And then the man uh, brought them in into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they were to eat a meal there. Upon arriving, the brothers are told that they are going to be dining with the man. They've got a little of their father in them, a little of their pessimism, because they think everything is against them. The man 
uh, is simply luring us into a trap. We're about to be punished for the silver that we had last time. The man who we know as Joseph is going to forcibly make us slaves in Egypt. We are supposed to see the irony. Is what they had done to the man. And frankly, it's what I would have done. Now that I've got Benjamin, the other favorite son, my full brother, go do what I did for 13 miserable years. Doesn't revenge taste sweet sometimes? But Joseph is a man of great faith and great integrity. Is it possible that instead of bitter revenge against those who have wronged you, that God wants to see forgiving, trusting grace? Let that sink in just a moment. These brothers, they didn't just steal your toys. These brothers plotted to kill Joseph. They sold him into slavery, which lasted for 13 miserable years. Sweet revenge. What would you have done? Better question, what do you do now? when someone wrongs you and you've got an opportunity. Do you entrust yourself to him who judges justly? That's what Jesus did when they nailed him to, to a cross. And this is what Peter encourages us to do when wronged. And this is what Joseph does. The brothers think they're in trouble. They approach the steward to cop a plea. Listen, we had no idea how the money ended up in our sacks last time. Here, here it is. We brought it back and we brought even more money for more food. And say it again, and we, we have no idea how the money got there. Of course, the steward knew all about it, and much like Joseph had to keep himself from crying, the steward no doubt had to keep himself from laughing. But but notice how the steward responds to the brothers. He he apparently speaks Hebrews, uh, Hebrew. He he is probably the interpreter and the steward who had actually returned the silver last time. And he says, be at ease, literally, be at peace. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. How could he have possibly known that? Your your God. The, The word for God is Elohim. Don't want to make more than is possibly here, but is it possible that while that that, that, that while Joseph was completely Egyptianized that he kept his trust in the true God. And is it, is it possible that he told the steward of the true and the living God? 
Because the steward says, your God, the God of your father, Elohim, he has given you treasure. You, 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 you think this is all against you? God's not against you. He's for you. He gave you treasure. He then floors the brother with a statement. I had your money. I got it last time. Which, which tells them that at least the steward and very likely the prime minister were somehow involved in the money being given back. On top of that, they are at his house. They're a little bewildered at this point. What is going on? Things get better. The plot thickens. At this point, the steward um, has Simeon brought out to them. This had to be a bit interesting. Nothing is said about a happy reunion. You know, nothing is said. I imagine Simeon is saying, where in the heck have you been? The steward takes the brothers into Joseph's house, shows them eastern hospitality, gives them water to drink and to wash their feet with. He, he feeds their donkeys. In the meantime, the, the brothers prepared the gift they had for the prime minister. Now, don't miss that. There's supposed to be more irony here. I asked the question, why do we get the list of the, uh, of the gift? What was this gift? You understand, first, that the word gift, the specific word here, is used to speak of a gift given to a superior. You know, the men giving a gift to little Joseph. And what comprised the gift? We read, a little balm, honey, aromatic gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Why the list? Because if you look back in chapter 37, when the boys sold Joseph to the Ishmaelite traders, they were on their way to Egypt. And verse 25 says that they were taking aromatic gum, balm, and myrrh. Same things. This is a great bit of, uh, of storytelling and irony that is supposed to strike us. They sold Joseph to some traders. Now they are presenting Joseph, a superior, the same gifts. What goes around comes around. That's why it's here. We're supposed to be reading that and go, oh, oh that's cool. This brings us to our last point, the regal feast. I've only got just a little bit left to go. Look at it with me, verses 26 and following. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house uh, to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before them, but before him. Then he asked about their welfare and said, is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is alive. He is, uh, is well, he is still alive. They bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, without waiting for an answer, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he controlled himself and said, serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves, the brothers, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome, detestable, and abomination. To the Egyptians. That's kind of interesting. And now they were seated before him. The firstborn according to his birthright. All the way down to the youngest according to his youth. 
And the men looked at one another in astonishment. He took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Notice very quickly, once again, the fulfillment of Joseph's dream. They bowed down low to the ground to pay him honor. Now we got 11 brothers. 11. All that's missing is mom and dad. Now, apparently there are no Sherlocks in this group because it had been several months since, he had, since they had seen the man, and yet the man remembered, after seeing no doubt thousands of people, he remembered they had an old father. He could tell by looking at 11 of them which one wasn't there last time. This is odd. Cue the Twilight Zone music. He says to Benjamin, through the interpreter, May God be gracious to you, my son. This was an address, really, of a superior to a subordinate, but for Joseph it was more. It was an address of loving endearment. He was deeply stirred. Don't miss that. Deeply stirred and ran out of the room to find a private place to weep. Deeply stirred. Do you remember when Jacob prayed that God would give the man compassion for his sons? Remember that? God Almighty El Shaddai? It's the same word that we read here. The man deeply stirred. He felt compassion. God answered Jacob's prayer. Jacob had no idea how God would do it. He didn't know it was Joseph. God answered Jacob's prayer. Joseph washed his face in return. And this is where it gets really strange. When they sit down to eat, they sit in three groups. Joseph, because of his exalted position, the other Egyptians who were there, and, and the brothers. You see, Joseph and the Egyptians ate apart from the brothers because we read Egyptians don't eat with Hebrews. This, was, this is an abomination. This is loathsome. This is detestable. Because they saw their occupation, we'll find out later, they saw their occupation as detestable, that of being shepherds. And they saw that what they ate, they, they, they thought that Hebrews ate sacred animals. Don't miss the detail. Why, why is this here? Because in Canaan, the family was in danger of being immersed into the culture. In Egypt, they would be detested just like God wanted to develop into a great nation. God knew what he was doing. Don't miss this further piece of irony. The last time the brothers were together eating a meal, remember that? 22 years ago? The brothers were hosting the meal, and Joseph was in the pit, crying. Now they're eating together again, and Joseph is the host. And the same potential fate awaits them. Will they be slaves in Egypt? Irony. When the boys got to the table, there was apparently those little name tents that you see at formal dinners because uh, they were directed where to sit, and they were seated in order of their age from oldest to youngest. Again, no Sherlock's. They're a little slow, but finally at this point, the brothers are astonished. They look around in amazement. How did he know this? This was, you see, confirmation to them that God is somehow involved in all this. 
Food is served. It was a feast. Remember, they've been in the midst of a famine. This would have been really cool. They, they, they feasted. But notice, Benjamin received five times as much as anyone else. Not that he would eat all of that. It was a sign of special honor. Why do you suppose Joseph did that? And I said, well, it's because it's his full brother. And he really, really likes him. Maybe. But more likely, Joseph was testing the brothers. Remember, they don't think he can understand what they're saying. He can hear the dinner conversation. And he wants to see just exactly how the brothers feel about this new favored son. Let me, let me, let me throw him a little favor. Has there been a change? Apparently, there was. Because we read that they ate and feasted. Uh, they ate and drank freely with Joseph. And so now the table has literally and figuratively been set. The plot has thickened. We are just about at the climax and the resolution of the story. But where does that leave us for today? Very quickly, quickly we see some of the same themes that we've seen before. First, the severe famine reminds us that while all things are not good, all things are for our good. Second, we see the faith of Jacob and Joseph contrasted. Again, the question as we identify, who will you be? Everything is for me or everything is against me? Third, how do you respond when wronged? With sweet revenge or trusting faith? And last, God is in the business of transforming people. He transformed Joseph. He is in the process of transforming Judah. Here's the question, how's your transformation going? Are you the same person that you were 20 years ago or two years ago? Let's stand for prayer. Go ahead. Father, we are thankful that you are a good God, that you are at work in our lives, and that there is nothing to prevent you from accomplishing your purposes. And part of your purpose is to transform us to be loving, gracious, forgiving responsible people full of faith and integrity. We pray that you would do that. Through Christ we pray. Amen.